0: Well hello, welcome to the Most Hated F-Word podcast, episode number four, the inner game of money. Like it or not, you, me, and everyone else, we all have a relationship with money. And for the most part, it's a complicated one. My name's Sean Maslick. Welcome to the Most Hated F-Word podcast. As a certified financial planner, I want to take you on a journey as we throw out the technical finance books and shift our focus towards our minds, our money, and what matters most. If you're looking to improve your relationship with money and build true wealth, you're in the right spot. Finances does not need to be the most hated F word. I'm excited for you to hear today's episode with Derek Hagan. Derek brings a unique perspective. He left the traditional investment management industry where he had a shelf full of different designations and certifications and years of experience. He left all of that to go work on the inner game of money. Derek is a financial therapist where he now works with people to help them understand their money stories, help them understand their values so that they can create a life based on those values. Derek talks to us why he decided not to retire at 42 years old, why financial information is not enough, what is the difference between inner finances versus exterior finances, how to achieve financial health, how to understand our money scripts because they are so influential on how we think and act and behave towards money, and a whole lot more. I am certain you're going to find this episode time well spent. Sit back. In your car, at your home, at your office, wherever you are, and enjoy this fantastic conversation with Derek Hagen. Welcome to the Most Hated F Word podcast. Uh, I'm fortunate to have Derek Hagen, uh, my second guest on the podcast. And before we jump into some really, really great questions and conversations with Derek, I wanted to take uh, a moment. And actually, I was joking with Derek before we started recording, more or less an hour maybe to read Derek's profile. Uh, Derek has a wide breadth of knowledge in life, the financial services industry, and now um, the financial therapy side of things. So here it goes. Derek is the founder of Money Health Solutions, a financial therapy and consulting firm. Money Health Solutions helps clients live intentionally and mindfully using money as a tool to support their ideal life. He facilitates financial health by helping clients understand their own money psychology, lowering financial stress, and increasing confidence in financial decision. Derek also started Money Health, a personal finance blog, focusing on the psychology of money, using personal stories and simple drawings to help demystify money for readers. Derek has also worked in the financial services industry for 18 years, including serving as a vice president of investments and planning, um, a director of wealth management for another wealth management firm. And he makes it... He makes it his number one priority to simplify matter, money matters using plain English. Um, I did notice in your spare time, you like to do a whole bunch of things outdoors, but the one thing that really spoke to me was Kung Fu. I think you're the first person I've ever met who's actually done Kung Fu. I think that's really cool. Um, But the other thing that's impressive about Derek is his education background. And we're gonna talk a lot about information and what is right information, how much is maybe too much information to consume but the reason why I want to point out Derek's information is our, sorry, his uh, education is it spans across a whole bunch of different types of um, knowledge within the financial services industry that positions him very well to have these conversations. So he is a certified financial behavior specialist. Derek could probably touch on that later, a certified financial therapist, certified financial planner, certified financial analyst, certified in investment uh, performance measurement. So to sum that up, Derek understands the ins and outs of an investment and how they're structured from the uh, CFA. He understands how to do financial plans from the CFP and then he understands the psychology of money. So I'm really looking forward to this conversation. So Derek, welcome.
1: Thanks so much for having me, I'm happy to be here.
0: Yeah, Um, so Derek, I I have learned something about you. Uh, we have recently just met via the wonderful internet, but I understand that uh, you have the opportunity or had or have, you can correct me to retire in 2022, which is two years from now, but you decided not to, I think for a lot of people, they'd be wondering what's with that.
1: Yeah, that's a great, great question. And you're right. Most people would view this as hurry up and retire as early as you can. But I didn't, even though I had the opportunity. So, uh, if I may, I, there's a little backstory here, mm-hmm. and I'll wrap this into something that anybody listening can apply to their own life, because not everybody's going to have the ability to retire right. in 2022 at, at age 42. So, uh, I found myself working as the director of financial planning at a financial planning company, making well into the six figures, pretty high salary, and my wife and I have a pretty simple lifestyle by design, you know, so we were never drawn into those keeping up with the Joneses, quote unquote uh, ideals. You know, we, we have no desire for the big house, the fancy cars, other people do, and that's okay. I'm, I'm not saying that those are wrong values. They're just not in our mm-hmm. values. So I ran it through our little plan. And it said with high likelihood we could retire, at age 42 or in 2022, so that's great. But, but at the same time, kind of layered on top of that, I started to do some research around the downsides of retirement, which is not really well known. This is kind of a new insight. There's, there's new research coming out on this. So it used to be that we would work really hard at our manual job that we hated until we were 62, and then we would retire, have unlimited leisure until 65, and then we'd die. So we needed a couple of years off because we just had this really tough job, a factory or wherever, but that's not the case. We're living 30 years, 40 years in retirement. That's, that's a long time to have unstructured free time. So the research into like dementia and Alzheimer's research shows uh, you're, you have a spike in risk for those diseases. If you lose social connections and if you lose your problem solving, using your brain, which are the two big things you get or that you leave when you leave work. Mm-hmm. You're not talking to your friends anymore, your colleagues, and you're not really solving any problems anymore. So I was a little bit worried about that. If I retire at 42 and I live to 82 or more, I've got 40 years of weekend to try to plan around. <laughs> yeah. So I'm spending my time trying to figure out, well, what hobbies can I do? Or Maybe I try to launch some business, or I don't. But I I knew that it's not sitting on a beach. The number one activity retirees do is watch television, behind sleeping. So that's not the way for me to spend my, my second half of my life. Wow. So, so those are a couple of things. And then when you look at the job that I had, so I've done a lot of work on, as you as you brought up so graciously, on the uh, kind of the mechanics of money how to do investments, how to wrap that into a financial plan. And I started learning more and more about psychology, about the psychology of money, behavior of finance, or behavioral finance, and communication, listening, and all these things were starting to build on top of my skills. And I realized maybe not overnight, but pretty quickly that just knowing the information isn't enough for people mm-hmm. to make good decisions. So, At this job, where I'm making a lot of money and I've got a fancy title, this is a firm that is almost explicitly an exterior financial company. And I can explain what that means. Exterior finance is what most people think about when they think about money and money management and getting ahead financially. They're thinking about the best way to budget or the best investment or the best asset allocation. Mutual fund, right? This is Mm -hmm. stuff that you can Google with enough time on Google. You can find this stuff. I'm not taking away from people who do that because you do need to know which questions to ask and you can save Mm -hmm. a lot of time by paying someone. But all that exterior knowledge in the world isn't going to help you if you can't get yourself to do it. So that's where interior finance comes in. That is your feelings about money, your behaviors around money, how you think about it and act around it. That's how do you converse with it? How are your money conversations? So all of those things are inside. That's the yeah. interior finance. So now I'm, I'm shifting then from exterior to interior at a firm that's almost exclusively exterior. So I'm not happy there. And it, it was just a bad fit. And that's on me for not doing some research ahead of time. Mm-hmm. Me and the person who ran that firm, totally different personalities and i do a lot of values work my top values are adventure autonomy uh, curiosity mindfulness humor and except for mindfulness because that kind of applies to everything none of those values are getting met at this firm so i thought why would i want to put myself through this for five years so that i can be bored for 40. why mm-hmm, wouldn't it mm-hmm. make more sense to start my own firm it wasn't necessarily my own firm at the time but Figure out a way to work in a field where I can do the stuff that I know actually works, actually helps people, and I can do that until I'm 70 or 75 or more because I don't need to make as much money, and I can happily work longer.
0: Hmm. Wow. Okay. A, a few things in that conversation. Thanks so much for sharing that, and I love how you put this internal versus external, and uh, this is something that is. Um, been uh, bouncing around in my head for years now and I never articulated in that way in internal versus external but if I look at I, I'm Canadian so I look at Canada uh, the Canadian Payroll Association shows that Canadians are two weeks away from uh, not being able to meet their exp- or two weeks of not being paid they won't be able to meet their uh, fixed expenses and this increases every year and our discretionary debt uh, ratio for how much we owe versus how much discretionary income we have increases every year. It's like 1.72 percent right now. This is all in light of having the internet, having more blogs about information, having more personal finance blogs, having more audiobooks available, but yet we become, uh, I mean, lack of a better word, poor and poor. But most importantly, stressed and stressed and stressed and stressed. Canadians actually reported um, our governing body for the CFP here. Um, they do study every year, but money was the highest ranked at 42% of things that stress us out. So a couple of things that you're saying here really resonate with me is this internal and external. And I think that's a powerful way for everybody to start thinking about, um, their finances is what, what is that external things that are up on that billboard, uh, that we think we should be going towards. And for me, I think something that it sounds like you have, um, Done a, uh, are on a journey towards doing this or doing a good job is the iceberg mentality. So like on the top of the water is the iceberg and that's what we see. That's our actions, but below it's our thoughts, beliefs, and feelings. And you mentioned something about values and doing a lot of planning around values. So maybe can you share with us is how did you go from the seemingly external world working in that investment uh, firm? And I know you said um, it didn't really align, but if you can recall, what, what was the actual or how did you come to that very courageous decision to be like, I'm done. You're close to retirement. You have a prestigious title. You have all these externally dopamine rushing things going on, but something, something put you over the edge to be like, okay, I'm done.
1: Great question. And I love the iceberg metaphor. That's, that's awesome. So it's hard to define a one thing that put me over the edge. Mm. Uh, so I don't think it was a one tipping point i don't think but uh when i started learning about listening i went to a a conference a few years ago or a seminar i guess three days on how to listen and i know that sounds funny i know how to listen right but but this was three full days on how to listen better and in that was neuroscience how does our brain work how does our brain pick up on things how do we you know we won't go into the whole thing there unless you want to go deeper but it was a lot of psychology work, a lot of neuroscience work. And what came out of that is we ought to be listening better because most of the time we're just shouting at each other, waiting for our turn to speak. That's what we think listening is, most of us, <laughs> is as you're yeah. talking, I'm thinking about what I'm going to say next instead of actually trying to draw out of you what you mean. So we, no, nobody really gets to think or talk with any depth. It's all surface level. So how do you, how do you draw out of people what they actually mean. So the, the little anecdote is with the right kind of listening, and if you listen long enough, people will tell you exactly what's wrong with them and what's going to work for them. Mm-hmm. So, so how do you listen better? So in that same conference, this is actually a guy, the guy who put on this conference taught courses at Creighton University. And that's how I ended up doing mm. a graduate certificate in behavioral finance and financial psychology. So the guy's name is Ted Klons, but Ted Klons was um, teaching the seminar and one of the things that stuck with me, (laughs) one of the many things that stuck with me was that information is not enough. About 20 percent of people are ready to change at any given time, 20 percent. And if you look at certified financial planner professionals and chartered financial analysts, all these tools are made for the people into 20%. And Mm -hmm. that makes sense because if you're on the other side, like I was, I'm coming to you, here's a bunch of money, tell me what to do. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to use the tools that say, okay, I'm going to tell you what to do. And that's great if that person is ready to receive that information. But most people aren't, even if they think they are, or maybe they are in one area, like investments, but they're not ready to change in their estate plan. So they're not getting a will together or something like that. And that was just profound to me. So maybe that was the cliff. Maybe that was the flash point was that seminar learning that most people aren't ready to change. So a bigger value that you can bring to people is helping them get to the point where they can receive the information.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And that will, that will, you know, what's the point of, of retiring if I can't contribute to the world? But if I can take that knowledge then and leave the job that I hate and use this knowledge to help the other 80% that aren't ready to change, that is a more satisfying way to live
0: for me. But not templated planning, but best practices. Uh, Here's the models we run to scale your business. Sometimes you have to be a little more efficient and streamlined to then completely reversing and being like, just tell me about your values. And it's almost like you're just like a conduit or um, uh, a place for them to release what they actually want. And maybe they're coming up with their own solutions Uh, maybe you could just touch on then we can transition into a lot of the work you do with your clients is how do you get those values out from them and how how do you be that space to allow them to just really find out what's underneath that iceberg
1: yeah that's a great question The, the the work that i'm doing so by the time people get to me information i'm not working with people that think they can spend some time on google and figure out the answer Mm-hmm. People that I see, thats they know what they're supposed to be doing. They know they're supposed to be saving more. They know they're not supposed mm-hmm. to be spending. They know they're not supposed to be fighting when they talk about money, or they know they're not supposed to be, you know, p- 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 stacking or piling up their bills on top of the fridge and not looking at them. They know those things are wrong. So, me telling them, well, you should save more and you should invest more and you should start looking at your bills that's not going to work for them because they already know that. So for me, there's people, there's uh, something standing in between them and financial health. I call it money health. There's something standing in between them and financial health. And they either haven't figured out what's in their way, or they think they know what it is, but they haven't been able to get around it on their own. So my approach is heavily listening focused and understanding that. So my main philosophy in life or in life, in my profession is you are the expert in yourself. Mm -hmm. I've got some training. I've got some education. I've got some experience, but I can't know more about you than you. So this is going to be a collaborative approach. And this is not going to be a director and listener role. There may be some time for that. You know, what if they ask, for example, or once they're in that place where they're ready to receive information, but for most of their relationship, we're in the same car and Mm -hmm. you're driving, but I'm navigating. So this is you have to understand too that for most of the people you already brought this up in a different uh, way of framing this but money is a high source of stress and that's where that neuroscience comes in when we perceive threats in our subconscious brains we go into survival mode mm-hmm. and we don't make very good decisions when we're in survival mode because we're just literally trying to get out we shut off the thinking part of our brain it's literally not working so we're acting and talking and speaking like children so we have to be careful not to allow survival mode to happen and talking about money is a shortcut to survival mode mm-hmm. so so instead of say asking what what are your financial goals that's abstract and it doesn't make sense but what does the future look like for you mm-hmm. well, i come to meet you in five years so it's a lot of deep imagination exercises yeah. i come up I come up to see you and we're having a coffee or a beer or some other conversational beverage five years from now, and it's 2025 and you're really happy. Why are you so happy? But these are ways that we can tease out goals, but without actually asking about financial goals. I actually don't like the word goals, but what do you want Mm -hmm. to accomplish? How can we get through that by having you think about your future? Most people don't think about planning their life. Mm -hmm. They're not designing a life. They kind of float around, from circumstance to circumstance. I was the same way for 25 years. Nobody really lays out a design, a plan for their life and then uses money as a tool to help live that life.
0: Yeah. Um, You know, I, I read something on my bank tracker, it's an American um, site, but I think it was one in five or two in five Americans spend more time planning their vacation than their financial goals. And I agree. I don't like the, the term goals either, but um, it's interesting how we don't take that time to just uh, plan out what we want to do. And something that I've always done with clients is I, um, I try to get them to rank one to 10, how much they love spending money on each item. And we take the average and it's just, it's just amazing how low averages are in terms of what they actually want to be spending their money on. So I'm going to pick at something that you're saying here is that, um, say, I'm, say that we're this person who's we're on the, we're on the edge. We know we should be saving more. We know we should be spending more. We know that it just feels wrong how we're spending our money every month. Maybe things are costing like, we just don't like what we're spending on. You, you mentioned something that I think is a great exercise for everyone is look at yourself in five years and write, how you're feeling. And I think that's just good. I don't understand the exact brain chemistry, but I know as you're telling, you you're giving your neural pathways a script to follow, so to speak. So if that's one thing people can do is map out in five years, what does your life look like? Not your bank account. What does your life look like? If that's one thing, is there anything else that you can suggest to people who again are on that edge, ready to go to help them kind of nudge them over, um, to, to go down this different path of the internal side.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And what we're describing there, when we go five years into the future, that's kind of where we want to go if you're looking at a map. Uh, so I do some hiking and more important than knowing where you want to go, if you're lost in the woods is figuring out where you're at. So the mm. first step is to figure out where we are. So what do you think? How do you, what do you believe about money and the, I don't like to use a lot of jargon, but sometimes it's helpful to know there's terms for this stuff. These are called money scripts, but a money script is a belief that we have about money. And we don't really know that we have them, Mm -hmm. but they drive all of our behaviors. So how are you behaving around money that you don't like? Write that down. I mean, this is not going to be a surface level fix. you got to spend some time So what do you not like about how you how money is working for you or not working for you? And then try to think back to your past. What, what is it that causes you to think, or act, or behave, or feel like, like that? So what did you learn about money from your parents? What did you learn about money from your culture growing up, from your friends? What was your most painful money memory, money memory? What was your most joyous one? What was your earliest memory of money? So these are ways that you can start to list out and think about what was money's role in my childhood? Because when we're young, we're kind of looking around the world and trying to piece together how does this world work? And we're very immature. We we don't have developed minds yet. So when we try to see there's A and then there's B and there's a perceived connection, if we keep seeing that connection over and over again, which is possible because in our family unit, that's only one sample size of how everybody Mm -hmm. treats money right but Mm -hmm. we're only seeing one piece of that but if we keep seeing it over and over and when even adults would fall for this but if we keep seeing the same thing over and over that becomes a rule so for example here's an easy one when i was a kid this isn't me this is just a common example when i was a kid we never talked about money unless it was being fought about so if every time money was brought up it was a fight i'm gonna quickly write a rule on the back of my head that says we don't talk about money Mm -hmm. right so that gets solidified that gets kind of grounded into into stone and or another one is growing up in poverty i grew up in poverty so rich people can become villains or evil whatever rich means you know that's another Mm -hmm. thing you can ask yourself when you're looking at your past is what did rich mean to you when you were growing up and what did poor mean to you when you were growing up because those are very very subjective terms so -hmm. whatever rich means if if every time you saw a quote unquote rich person and they came and threatened to evict you or every time you saw a rich person they were making fun of you at school for having hand-me-down clothes while they had name brand clothes you're going to start to create a little rule about you know rich people are bad some version of that Mm -hmm. now that was troubling because if you hold that belief then later in life, when you start saving up money, you're going to have some emotional disconnect because I hate rich people and I'm starting to get a bigger balance, but I'm not a bad person. So how do I reconcile that? Suspense what
0: do you see happens path- that, in that situation? What do you see can happen if they have that script or that rule, and if they start accumulating, um, left, un, left, left alone, what do you, what do you mm-hmm. see happens?
1: That could go many different ways, because mm-hmm. we're all individuals. And one totally. of the crazy yep. things, crazy, crazy things about these money scripts is two siblings. I don't know if there's been studies about twins, but I imagine just two people, twins, even could grow up in the same household, same experiences, same lessons, and take in totally opposite yeah. directions. So one will take it the exact opposite and say, "I'm not going to do that." The other one will say, "That's what I'm comfortable with, and that's what I know." So if you've got that money is bad belief there's a chance you might not even get those balances built up because you've Mm -hmm. lived this life you're not going to look for opportunities you're not going to ask for raises because why would i do that managers are jerks and i'm not a jerk and then i don't want to become a high income person if you do start saving then you start to see that there's money there and now you see people spend they give it away and it's never conscious we don't know that we're doing this Mm -hmm. but you, you could see this with people who they save up some money and then Christmas comes or then some reason comes to give all that money away. And it's disguised as being good, right? I'm giving Mm -hmm. gifts to my nieces and nephews, but it's draining that account and then it builds back up. And then I find a reason to give it to charity this time. And they all are making me look like a good person to the people who are receiving this money, but it's preventing me from actually setting myself up for financial independence.
0: Right yeah those money scripts i mean you talk about that rule that it creates in our brain and unconsciously those are just making our decisions over and over um i'm I'm interested if you're willing to share uh you, you you made a comment about your childhood a little bit about growing up what was um what was the money story or the money script in your household with your parents if you don't mind sharing and then How did that impact you growing up? And then uh, a bit longer question, but and then as today, what lessons did you learn from that money script, either positive or negative, that you you're using today?
1: Yeah, and I can, I'll start. I'll use your iceberg metaphor, but I'll start with part of it, and then we can peel back the layers as as needed because there's a lot. There's a lot to talk (laughs) about. So, grew up in poverty, uh, single mother, four kids so that's challenging in and of itself so there was never any talk about money amongst my parents because there's only one uh, one parent we were we i was the oldest so mostly me were kind of the the person who would run interference when the landlord would come knocking on the door or when bill collectors would call i would answer the phone hello nope my mom's not uh. here Uh, So I was, so they call this financial enmeshment, you know, involving children in matters that they're not emotionally prepared for. And, you know, it was difficult to make friends because I, I could have friends at school, but I didn't really want to invite people back to my apartment when everybody else lived in houses. It was a little insecurity thing that I had when I was growing up. So there was just never enough money. So I made this decision to, I need to do something to make a lot of money. And for me, I, I don't remember where I got this book, but I so it's not a perfect memory. But somewhere along the lines, I picked up a careers in money, or careers in finance kind of a book
2: mm-hmm.
1: flipping through there. And it went all the way from here's what a bank teller does and a bank manager. And here's what a stock trader does and went through all the whole book several times. And there was this one thing called portfolio manager. Didn't have any idea what that meant, but the salary was like two hundred fifty or 500000 mm-hmm. It was by far the highest salary in the book. And so I said, I got to do that. That's my ticket out of here is I just got to make this money. So then I ended up, took a roundabout way through college, but I did end up in finance. And then from there, I went to economics. Uh, but with the whole goal of being whatever this portfolio manager is, I started <laughs> studying for this chartered financial analyst, CFA, designation, which is a very heavy investment focus. Yes. Designation. And heavy uh, investment in time. (laughs) (laughs) For me, yeah, Yeah. absolutely. Uh, That's, for for those who don't know and they're interested, it's three different levels, and they're all three six-hour exams. And each level, you have to take them sequentially, level one, level two, level three, and the pass rates are 30% at level one, up to like 50% at level three.
0: Yeah, it's intense. I,
1: I forget the number, but it's pretty low. It's something. It's, I think it's something like ten percent or less of people who start level one actually finish level three.
2: Yeah. So
1: yeah, I failed each exam multiple times. So mm-hmm. I'm not trying to make myself some kind of smart guy here, but that was my ticket, you know. So or what I thought was my ticket. Then I learned, you know, what a portfolio manager is. There. Kind of the ones that are managing the portfolio of investment of investments. So, think of if you have a mutual fund, there is a team that's picking those stocks or bonds or other investments that are in there. That's not really, as I learned more, that's not really what I wanted to do. But that's what got me into the financial industry to begin with. Was going from not having anything to how can I get out of this? I have to start making money, and I, I developed the belief that working in finance was the only way to do
0: that. Hmm. Two things there that uh, really stand out to me. One is uh, on my blog, I've been talking about, uh, I mean, with the economic condition we're, we're in right now, the markets are very volatile, but beyond that, it's just our emotions are so volatile with all this uncertainty. So I talked about financial resiliency. This is a new, not a new topic. A lot of people are talking about financial re- resiliency, which is good, but, when you're telling your story, I can't just help, but think about the resiliency in you when you're describing a single parent growing up in poverty, um, having to adopt that adult role with your, with your uh, mother, but then to have the resiliency to be like, I'm going to flip through this page and find this very intense, intense education program. And I'm going to take it and I'm going to go do it. And then you actually went and did it. So, uh, as a, as a young child, you're already exhibiting such good resiliency techniques, But uh, and I'm sure there's a whole bunch of information on there. But the second part, that was more of a comment. The second part I find so interesting that I feel like you're solving this issue with the general population is that, you, this is your quote, after you did the CFA or during the CFA, then you learned I didn't want to do this. So I just find it so backwards that we are, not just you. Everyone's like, I want to be a lawyer. I want to be a doctor. I want to be this because the income's so high. I want to be a CF. Mm-hmm. I want to be this chartered financial analysis it's because the income's so high. And then we learn, luckily for you, well, 18 years, is a long time. I mean, that probably got you where you wanted to. So you maybe needed those years, but often we look back and being like, wow, I'm not enjoying this at all. And so we make these decisions this is my point here, is that we're making these decisions based on money, rich, whatever our definition or wealth, so to speak. But my my the guest I talked to last week, he talked about the the the, the root word of wealth is actually well-being. And we certainly have lost track of that. Um hmm. is that we're making these decisions to put ourselves through this, um, pain, if you want to call it, of this job for 40 years to get wealth when we're just sacrificing all along the way. So, um, yeah, I don't know if you have any comments on that.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, think about your typical attorney, right? You're in high school and I'll I'll get friends once I get my straight A's in high school because I got to get into a top college. But now I'm in college. Now I just got to put my head down because I got to hurry up and, and, and get straight A's so I can get into the top law school then I'll start my life. Well, but now I'm in law school and I need to graduate top 10% mm-hmm. of my class. Then I'll start my life. Well, but now I need to make partner. So I need to really work these crazy yeah. hours. And then now you're 40 and you're like, my life sucks. Yeah. But, and that's, that's kind of one of the main points that I that I hope your listeners take away from this is what I was doing was floating around life, doing what I thought other people did, doing mm-hmm. what I thought I was quote unquote supposed to do it wasn't until based on my upbringing it wasn't until in college that professors asked me what do you want and it was frustrating for me because nobody's ever asked me that so i didn't know how to answer that question so there was one professor who wanted me to go to law school another professor my advisor wanted me to go get a phd in economics but i thought well with law school i just did some research and it was like getting that top paying law job is like the nba or right? you know most people public defenders not making as much, and with my eyes on big money salary, that wasn't going <laughs> to work for me. So, what about a PhD in economics? Well, to me, that was five more years of school minimum and a lot mm-hmm. more student debt to make eighty thousand as a professor. See, so I didn't have any recul- any any inkling that what that means is eighty thousand dollars to have a job where you get the summers off and you set your own hours and you get to teach your favorite subject, and you get to Mm -hmm. research what you want to research. Mm -hmm. Looking back, I'm like, my God, that would be kind of (laughs) sick. But that didn't have the big old price tag that I thought that I needed to get. So when he finally said, well, what do you want? I don't know. I just kind of, what's available? That's kind of what my mentality was when I was growing up is, well, there's a job opening. I'm going to go apply. Oh, they offered me a promotion. I, I should apply for it. I should do these things. I never ever had a choice to live intentionally. So that's what that retirement story that I was talking about. you know remember, not many people are going to have that exact situation, but we had to wander around in the forest in the trees to get the context. But if we can zoom up to the forest, what you can take away from that is that we all have the ability to live within our values. Maybe your values might not be adventure and humor and curiosity. and mindfulness yours might be family or health or fitness or you know whatever that's great but you've learned what they are and then design a life around that right even if it means doing something that looks crazy to society uh,
0: you know what i have to say for you um it, uh, it's very impressive that you you're saying this advice but you took that advice i mean and I'm just saying this from a person who's well entrenched in the financial, uh, industry space, you were like wall street's biggest desire, a CFA, uh, a C CF or a CFP, uh, 18 years. And yet you walked away from all that glamor and it is glamorous to some degree. And it's intentionally designed that way to attract and retain people. But, uh, I I like what you're talking about this design and learn what you like and do it. And, um, I I think that's really, really important. And something that uh, I'd like to get your perspective on this. Um, something that I do struggle with in terms of vocalizing, uh, my perspective and something that I always want to be conscious around is that I'm not throwing my values or imparting my values on other people and how they should live. I like to just share what I'm Mm -hmm. doing, similar to what you're doing, talk about my story. Um, But this idea, everyone can uh, design that life. Um, My wife works in the healthcare industry and she challenges me with this often. And um, in terms of not everybody has the capacity or the privilege to actually uh, design that life and and i recognize that and my answer to her is that yes i know and if i look at maslow's hierarchy of needs there's that certain basic level that we need our shelter and there, there's a lot of information that needs to be shared there um i'd like you to touch on if possible how what's your perspective on making that statement in terms of design? everyone it, everyone's the word i'm curious is everyone could design the life that they want and when you get that rebuttal, whoa, 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 whoa. So my question is specifically is here. How much of that rebuttal is resistance inside the person who's just not ready to change and hasn't recognized that versus, yeah, you know, legitimately there's certain demographics or people who just can't design their life at this point?
1: A lot, a lot that we can talk about there. So the the quick answer, the one that I that I yeah. was thinking about when you said that was, you know, almost everything in the world is 80-20. So mm-hmm. 80% is just, you're not in that stage of change where you're ready to to admit, right. I have control over this. If you told that to me when I was 18, I would have said, you're out of your mind. Mm-hmm. Even though it was true, I, I wasn't in any position to be able to hear that. Mm-hmm. But there are some people, and I, I made up the 80-20, but yeah. there are some level of people who can't design the life that they want but let's just let's talk about that design the life that you want that's not the same thing as designing a life that supports your values so I may have a life that I want that's an aspiration and right now I can't afford that that aspiration but I can still take a job that helps me sleep at night and is you know even if it's even if it's entry level, somewhere mm-hmm. you can still work in areas and industries that support what's important to you. You can still choose to spend your money, whatever, however small that is. Now we're talking about people who have some discretionary yeah. income. Right. There's people at the bottom who need help mm-hmm. uh, from society or from, you know, just you and me. That's fine, I mean, people are down on their luck sometimes. Yeah. And those people have no ability to save. Mm-hmm. You know. That's that they're kind of forced, this lifestyle is forced on them. They can't afford to move to a different neighborhood or right. anything like that. Yeah. So, so once you're outside though of, of that bottom of the pyramid, the safety and security, now you've got a choice. And that is, well, what's the money for? So every extra dollar that you earn, why? You didn't need to, you can survive quote unquote, you know, living a poor lifestyle, but you made another dollar. What's it for?
2: Mm -hmm.
1: Well, what's it for means you should spend some time to figure out, well, what are my values? What's important to me? And then how can I design this life that revolves around that? So for some people it's family, right? So now I can design a life around raising a healthy family or raising uh, independent children. For some people it might be health or fitness or both. So they can design a life around that. Um, But there is some reason for you. Simon Sinek has a book start with why yeah which I highly recommend but that's kind of the same thing we all have a reason that we get up in the morning and I'm just adding money on top of that that that's right okay so you've got a reason that gets up now what do you want money for I give you $100 what are you gonna do with it now if you've done some work and know what kind of life that you want to try to support that's gonna be different than people who haven't done that work which is most of the people Mm -hmm. would now go blow that and consider this a windfall and say, "Oh, good! I can go finally buy that new toy." I don't, I don't even know what people would buy, but yeah. I would. I can go waste this now. But so that's living reactively. Living intentionally is. I know, what, I, what kind of life I want. Right. So somebody me- interpret that. Some might interpret that as. Uh, what am I supposed to do like what's my purpose but it doesn't need to be that focused it could just be what kind of life do I want to live mm-hmm. so if I if I may you talked about Wall Street designs their jobs around glitz of fame and that's awesome for people that have those values right because I could go to a lot of different sporting events and restaurants and these were paid for by all the companies that wanted our business <laughs> so mm-hmm. that was a great lifestyle if you had those values. But I value outdoors and travel and adventure. Yeah. And working at a job that demands twelve hours a day and one week of vacation a year doesn't allow me to do that. So mm-hmm. I switched it and said, what if I work wherever I'm at? Then I can travel and do whatever I want within reason. So
0: anyway. Yeah. Um I'm it, I'm curious if you've had this well-defined and I love Simon Sinek and Start With Why is a fantastic book. uh, And I often talk about using his terminology, but a financial why. So it's basically a mission statement. I mean, businesses spend hours deciding what their business mission statement is so that the employees, the culture, the values all can be narrow focused towards that mission statement. When I ask people, why do you make money? They look at me, like, well, I got to pay my bills, but for you, do you have a financial why kind of like your lens and it sounds like it and I might make some assumptions, but uh, I clearly defined like household financial why that you and your wife have that answers that question that you talked about. What do I do with that extra dollar I made?
1: Yes. And I would be a hypocrite if I didn't, because this is what I teach my clients. So first step was discovering what are your top values and minor adventure autonomy, curiosity, humor, and uh, mindfulness so then and there's some other exercises that we do as well so that's one of the pieces of the puzzle and i say we call it money purpose but money why that's a good mm-hmm. good phrase as well so money's role and purpose in my life i have clients fill in the blank after mm-hmm. when we're there you know they don't mm-hmm. do this too soon money's <laughs> role and purpose in my life is to help me enjoy my time here on earth while i can and experience all the experiences that i can that's mine nice now that may not resonate with people listening because everybody's different um, but you know that's what that's what ours is and that's why we have designed this life that allows us to go camping for three weeks at a time or um, you know every other weekend go to a different place to hike
0: nice um, my it certainly resonates with me mine is to experience life's beautiful moments so very similar in the experiential level. So, uh, and I have found ever since I decided to operate with that lens, it was so much easier when it linked with underneath the iceberg, my actual values, it was so much easier to continue driving my 2011 vehicle. When people ask me all the time, why do I drive that? And it's because I don't value cars and not saying that people who do shouldn't, it's just personally. And I've, I found once I articulated my financial why that resonated with my values, it's it's easy to make those decisions to some degree because uh, they just feel right. Absolutely. Um, I know we're coming up to our time here, but in your main bio, you talked about um, money as a tool to support. And I'm su- assuming that means you're this, this life by design. <laughs> I'm interested to get your perspective on, and this goes back, I feel, to money scripts, but there's it seems like there's two polarizing camps towards money. One is I got a, well, maybe it's Wall Street's perspective, or maybe it's just the money status individual, but I need to make money to be happy. I need to collect as much as possible for a sense of security. Or the other side is they feel that, ah, these people are selling out. These people are, I'm more virtuous virtuous than them because I don't believe in money where I see your comment, money as a tool, as like, it, it, when I read that, it's separate separate of the actual person. So maybe can you describe on what do you mean using money as a tool to support whatever it is that you were alluding to? Yeah,
1: yeah. so without thinking about it or people who haven't really thought about this much and this is most people you ask you ask people what's your goal Uh, you know i wouldn't ask that because that's an abstract question but you could Mm -hmm. be asked in a book what is the what's your goal or what do you want or when when should you retire and for a lot of people it's some magic number Uh, Mm -hmm. once i have three million dollars once i've got a million dollars once i've got a hundred thousand per year in income generating from my portfolio Mm -hmm.
2: whatever
1: but it's always money driven. Mm-hmm. but money is not the goal there's a quote I'm putting this in my next blog post there's something I I'm, I'm going to blank the word now nobody lays on their deathbed wishing they spent more time with their money so <laughs> yeah. so, so the collection yeah. of money isn't what you're yeah. supposed to be doing like yeah. what are you going to do with it you don't yeah. you're not going to swim in it like Scrooge McDuck right? you, mm-hmm. you're going to do something with it and that that trying to separate it from, oh, I just need to make as much money as possible, that's what my belief was, or I need to get to some number, or I just need to have a minimum of this and savings account, whatever, that those are money as a goal. Mm-hmm. But if we can, if we can separate that from ourselves and say, no, what do I actually want to be? Who do I want to be? What do I want to become? And how can I use money? to support that. And it's not, I'm not suggesting it's only people that have a lot of money. It's—it's it's, uh, There's a guy named Mitch Anthony has a quote, uh, live the best life possible with the money that you have. Mm. So, yeah. So that's another way to frame that, you know, people who say, well, great, you've got the privilege to do this. Well, no, whatever money you have, you can do whatever you want to support your life. Yeah. Give you the best life possible with the money that you have. That doesn't, nothing, nowhere in that does it say, stop looking for other sources of revenue or income. It doesn't say mm-hmm. stop looking for promotions or stop adding to your marketability. But it says, whatever you've got, live the best life that you can.
0: Um, and you can you're using your money to do that. Uh, and thanks for clarifying that. And because it's so easy to use that goal, and I'm using the word is uh, probably intentionally goal, as money is the motivating factor. And uh, yeah, I mean, when we're 90 years old, we're not going to be checking out our bank account. We're going to be thinking of the time we spent with our kids or grandkids or hiking, whatever that is. But, um, right. uh, Lao Tzu has a quote that says he are, he who is contented is rich. And I bring that up right now is because of what you just said about, mm-hmm. um, uh, that fellas quote, live with the best life with the money you have. I like that quote because to me, I really think that that encapsulates kind of what we're talking about. He is who who is contented is rich. But if you break that down, it doesn't necessarily mean we can't have goals and aspirations that uh, we're just, we're totally fine the way we are. But it's just being okay with certain, being at ease where we are right now, Um I feel is, is a happy place, but still having those goals and aspirations. And I know we're coming up to close here, but what's, what's your thoughts on that is, is living in that moment, so to speak. And then how do you balance that with still having goals? Because as humans, we like to achieve, we like to flourish.
1: Yes. So there's, so I am, I'm of the camp and I think I'm a tiny majority or tiny, sorry, tiny minority of people that I don't even use the word goals. I use guesses or starting points or, You know, think of it this way: If you set a goal, a very smart goal, right? Specific and measurable, and Mm time-based, and all that, and then you set a plan, a path to get there, and then you took the goal away, but still continued with that path, you're still going to be well off. But now you're not attached Ah, to that outcome. I'd like. It's like if if somebody says to you, your target sales, you know, if you're a salesperson, your target sales next year is going to be 20% growth, and you get 21 percent you're going to be happy even if 30 percent was possible uh, yeah or if you get 19 percent, you're going to be disappointed even though that was the maximum you could have done yeah 20 is arbitrary so what are we doing you know, why that didn't is we just
0: a great great analogy of remove the goal and how do you feel
1: yeah absolutely and so the i use some mindful based, mindfulness-based ideas in my practice uh, so money mindfulness, let's bring awareness back into our finances. And that's what we use that money purpose for. Mm-hmm. So I even have my clients, I laminate it and send it to them and I I have them before they make any purchase, look at the card. Mm. And now you have all the permission to justify this purchase. I'm not telling you not to do it, but what we're doing is putting some space in between stimulus and response. We don't want right. your subconscious to make this decision by stopping and saying, will this help me enjoy my time on earth and have as many experiences as possible and then feel free to legally justify that however you want but what Mm -hmm. you did was made it a a conscious decision right you know kind of like if you take a bag of chips you are gonna eat the whole bag of chips but if you split it up into four bags you still have permission to eat all four bags but every time you reach the end of one you have a conscious decision Now, do i want to open up that second bag but then the second kind of i don't know i guess mindfulness type based approach is gratitude. I try to promote gratitude. And that's that's when you flip that script. So most people are looking up the mountain and say, I just need to get a little further. I just need to get a little further. I got so far to go. My friends all have this. This is relativity. This is the keeping up with the Joneses. Everyone mm-hmm. jealous. But nobody looks around and says, holy, look how far I've come. This mm. is amazing. Let's be grateful for what we have. If something went wrong, what lesson did you learn? And what can you be grateful for that you still have? Right. And all this stuff takes practice. And this isn't something that you can just go home and change in your mind, because it takes some rewiring there, but eventually that becomes second nature to you. And, and it'll be, uh, you'll wake up one day and say, wow, i am got a
0: weight lifted off my shoulders. Mm-hmm. But you know what, I, I, I really, really, that money purpose card, and that exercise, like I like that looking up or at the mountain, because we're conditioned to look up. But looking behind us, and the reason why I am extremely interested in these things is because it's going back to your internal uh, versus external, and these are external or th- internal things. And so often, and why I've intentionally made this podcast not focus on like, let's talk about the best asset allocation for a recession proof market is because, um, it it, is because it's cool, fun, and sexy and it sounds really neat. You and I could just like go into the depths of this and sound really interesting. Probably, maybe not, but, uh, this is, I feel like the things that change people's actual lives and it's hard. And, like you're saying here, you can't just, like, if we all start doing this tomorrow, it's not gonna change our life. But if you start starting these things tomorrow, it's that idea of we are what, or we become our habits. And if we start yeah. making these as a habit, um, eventually that's what we are. And uh, I'm a big believer in habits and creating proper habits, because I feel like if you don't, habits happen to us. And the chip example I'm gonna go to is in that moment, If I don't eat that bag of chips, it actually, that specific example has very little to do in my entire life, but that decision not to eat, and that's why it's so easy just to justify eat the chips. But if I make that decision and continuously do that six months down the road, you got your six back. (laughs) Um, So we're coming up to our time here. I know you had a story and I don't know how long this story is about a real estate agent uh if you want to give that story it, 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 i don't know how long this story is but i was interested i want to save some space for that but i don't, I don't know what, what timing
1: well I, i've got time if you can okay. so, yeah uh this is a good i chose a story intentionally again it's going to be we're going to walk through the forest along the trees and there might not be anything that applies to you listening but we're going to zoom up at the end and see how the forest right. looks and how we can play it so I worked with a real estate agent, uh, we'll call him Damien for sake of anonymity. So Damien is a real estate agent in uh, Winnipeg, actually. Hmm. And Damien came to me and said, I, I've got problems. I I can make as much money as I want I mean, within reason, but I spend too much. So when I make eighty thousand, I spend eighty five. And when I make one hundred five, I spend one hundred ten. One year I made one hundred eighty and I spent two hundred. So my solution to this was stop working because I dig myself into a hole. You know, most people think I need to make more money to solve my problem, but this is digging me into a hole. So I stopped working. Okay. So that's kind of the presenting issue, the -hmm. cliff notes version there. So uh, two avenues that we approached, one was looking at Damien's history and Damien grew up in a world where both parents were status spenders. uh, And I, I've never spoken to his parents. So I don't know, you know, cause these money scripts are generational. So mm-hmm. there may be a situation where one of, one of his parents was called poor once and that was a highly emotional, what they call financial flashpoint, like a money version of trauma.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: so he said, maybe he wrote this script that said, I'm never going to be called poor again. So now he used his money as a way to make it look like he was quote unquote rich or had money, so nobody could call him poor anymore. Um, so that was passed down to her. And there was a distinction between rich and wealthy. So you had to go through rich to get to wealthy and rich, what he defined as rich was fake rich. So like your status seeking mm-hmm. types, who the ones that don't have money, but they want it to look like you have money. So wealthy was fine, but that step in between was a problem. So that was stuff that was being carried with him. For his whole life, on top of which, people who were responsible with their money were were lame. They were boring. Mm. Your aunt, mm-hmm. your aunt and uncle have a financial planner. Yeah. Oh, oh yeah. gross! What a, what kind of person does that? So, being responsible with your money was viewed as being bad, right? So that's right. what she grew up with. That's what. So there's a whole lot of money scripts that were developed around that upbringing. But bringing those to the light, you know, first. You need to be aware of what they are, what these money scripts are that are driving your decisions. Then you can start to look at where they came from and now you've got some awareness around your behaviors. But only after doing that can you start to change them. You can't change something that you, doesn't, that you don't know exists. Mm-hmm. So that was step one was to figure out and, and it's, it's like an aha moment. It's like click. Oh, wow, this, that makes a lot of sense. You know, it takes a lot of time, a lot of listening, but we got there. Second avenue is he works in a uh, industry, real estate sales. That's kind of status driven. So you have to come up to your customer meetings with fancy cars and you have fancy clothes on. Uh, you have to live in a certain type of house and neighborhood. But this is this was circumstance to circumstance living. This was reaction based living. I think I'm supposed to do this mm. because other people are doing this. So once we got clear on these values. Uh, he was never asked this before and once he did this he thought oh my god this is crazy i, I didn't realize that what i value has nothing to do with how i've been spending my money and mm-hmm. so now it was just it became very easy to to for him to say well yeah i can show up in a volkswagen rabbit when everybody else says european well, i guess that is european but everybody else has the luxury cars i can show up in my tiny little car that's no problem i can scale my wardrobe down to certain number of things, because once you rotate the shirts and the coats, you can't really tell anyways. And it just became easier to not worry about what other people were thinking. So I wanted to close with that because there's this client, and you don't have to come to somebody like me. You can get there on your own, but those are the two avenues that are very helpful to explore that we've kind of talked about with our time here. One is, what's your history? What are your... Try to figure out what those money scripts are because understanding what those are will help you understand what's driving your behaviors. And then you can work to change them. and then also figure out what's important to you and what kind of life do you want? Because without doing that, you might find yourself living a life where you're kind of living by other people's values without even knowing it.
0: Um, yeah, wow. That, that story, I mean, there's a lot of people who I know that, I think that story can resonate with and I, this is not this is more an observation but it's interesting how we can't really define this but how much was that conversation worth to Damien where that shift happened where he can now show up in that smaller car and we can't really articulate a dollar amount on that we can't but to me that's that's where the real work is is what is that freeing? What is that? Like, to me, that's financial independence. I know there's a definition Mm -hmm. of living off your passive assets, but like that's financial independence. And so, yeah, uh, I I like your suggestions that you've made and I'll I'll, I'll put those in some show notes of what we can start doing right away. Um, Of course, it's not going to happen overnight, but we, we can start doing these things right away. Absolutely. Um, Just a couple quick questions for you. Uh, I I read that you read 40 books a year-ish, give or take. Is there a book that I know recommending books is a hard thing because you like a book because where you're at in your certain life, it resonates with you. But is there a book you would recommend? It could be from the financial work. It could be from change because I think a lot of this conversation was talking about change in a financial Mm -hmm. context. But is there a book that you would recommend that really has spoken to you?
1: Yeah, I I would say so. And I like your... You know you're in a different place to receive different information Mm -hmm. and i've read multiple books multiple times i get something out of it different each time i've read it so it's that's fascinating Mm
2: -hmm. but there's
1: a cartoon called dilbert Mm -hmm. and the the founder of dilbert is named scott adams and he has a book called how to fail at almost everything and still win big oh i shortened that to how to fail yeah Uh, but that's that's an amazing book because he this is where you learn Systems over goals. So get rid of that, drop the goal and work on a system instead. Mm. And uh, basically how to fail means it's okay to fail because if you're failing, you're trying. And as long as you're getting the lessons that come out of that, yeah, that's good. Just just make sure that you don't don't leave the failure without and failure is defined as any outcome you didn't want, you know. Right. It doesn't need to be catastrophic. But don't leave the failure without getting the lessons from it. So that's uh, that's a really good book that I've read multiple times. Otherwise, B.J. Fogg, uh, Stanford guy, wrote a book called Tiny Habits, very similar to James Clear Atomic Habits. If you're mm-hmm. familiar with that one, yeah. Uh, but these are just ways to, if there's something that you want to do, you know. So this doesn't this ignores the past. Let's we don't have to worry about the past. If we know what we want to do, mm-hmm. we can try to implement new habits, um, and we do it in a tiny style. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, that's a, that's a pretty good book. If you want to learn how to implement new habits, financial or otherwise.
0: Okay, great. Um, and these are just two quick ones that are opposite each other. So we've talked to, I mean, this is about money. Uh, what is the, the best money habit you have? And then what is the worst money habit you have? I mean, when I say worse, we're all humans. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, uh,
1: great question. So, best money habit I have is automating anything that can be automated because mm-hmm. we want to get rid of um, cognitive drain. You know, we, we don't want to have to rely on willpower. Any system that relies on willpower is doomed to fail. So if I can remove those decisions from my daily life, that's going to be great. Now you still got to check in on your system. So mm-hmm. checking in once a month for me, to could be once a week, twice a week or twice a month, but automating as much as possible. And my worst, our poorest,
0: our one debt. Yeah, you...
1: I would. Say, that's. I've not really thought about that, <laughs> but I would say I am. Uh, so here's the negative one. I I can spin it as positive. At least you know, how, you know our minds justify our decisions, mm-hmm. and that's what is happening right now. But so I am a convenience guy. I will. Spend on convenience, but what that means is that I buy lunch way more than I should, mm-hmm. and I even know that I'm—I know that I shouldn't—even while I'm ordering the lunch. I know that I'm not supposed <laughs> to be. Yeah. Like you got food upstairs? Just go get some food. And I'm like, oh no, I'm gonna get, and then I'm gonna get delivery soon too, so it's gonna be even more. Mm-hmm. So I just I buy way too much convenience food.
0: <laughs> uh, do you ever uh, follow remit remit safety? Yeah. he's big on convenience <laughs> he's like pay for the convenience Oh, that's right that's right. Yeah. <laughs> uh well thank you so much uh, again i i love your perspective of like the financial planning cfa and then the inner work um that i think is so incredibly important um i have checked out your website and i'm subscribed to it now i love the cartoons uh, i don't know if you're drawing those but they resonate really well with the story and it's a great way to read a blog so I, I want to anyone listening to this to go to your site uh, sub- subscribe to your blog. Cause it's really, really good content. Uh, I've only been following you now for a short while after I um, reached out to you, but I'm really enjoying it. So maybe just uh, let uh, people know a bit more about yourself where they can find you online. And if anyone's interested, how they can get in touch.
1: Yeah. Thank you. And I, I appreciate those kind words. I do draw those pictures.
0: they great myself.
1: So, um, <laughs> That came from a mentor of mine, Carl Richards sketch guy for the New York Times. And, um, so, and then that and Dan Rome, guy named Dan Rome together, they're both visual learning gurus really. So if you can't communicate it in a picture, you don't understand it well enough. So Ah. I'm trying to incorporate that. And then there's another popular blog, wait, but why that uses a lot of pictures. Uh, So I'm trying to incorporate more of those. But uh, my home base is Mm MoneyHealthSolutions.com. That's where you can learn more about what I do, more about me. There's a tab at the top called Money Health Blog and that's where you can read uh, previous posts. You can sign up to get the weekly newsletter. It's not spammy. It's not gimmicky. It's just, you know, good information once a week on Thursdays it comes out and all the links to social media, to YouTube, Instagram, that'll be on that website as well at the bottom.
0: Awesome. Yeah, I, I certainly urge people to go there, check it out and uh, read the blog, subscribe to it and see Derek's amazing art. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all amazing, right it looks like a third grader. <laughs> uh, yeah, but there, there's something about the simplicity that just it, it works well. Um, thank, you. thank you so much. I really, really am grateful for you to take the time out of your schedule. Uh, I mean, we only have a finite amount of time, and the fact that you chose to spend it here, I, I really appreciate that. And uh, I'm glad it could
1: help. This is a message worth spending.
0: Yeah. Well, I look forward to staying in touch and uh, have a great day. Thank you for tuning in to the most hated F word podcast. If you're enjoying the content. Me a review on iTunes. I greatly appreciate it. Well, now it's time for me to get the F out of here.